Amen. We are in our series called Church at the Lake. And um, summertime is uh, a great time of the year because one of the things that really happens uh, a lot in the summertime is that there are a lot of weddings that take place during the summertime. And the popular months for weddings are from May to September. And from May to September, there's 153 days that you could have a wedding. And of those 153 days, there are 6,200 weddings per day in the United States. So that adds up to 948,600 weddings between May and September. That's a lot of weddings. That's a lot of money because the average wedding in the United States costs $20,000. Wow. Now, in, in my years of being a pastor, I've officiated in about just over 85 weddings. And um, in every wedding, there's been a near disaster or a disaster that has taken place during the wedding. <laughs> Everything from, let's say that there's, now I may be ahead of you, Julie, on this, but, uh, it, you know, there's these great weddings that are going on. First of all, my kids' weddings. I love my own kids' weddings. Uh, Leela and Cody, Christian weddings are the best weddings. So there's Leela and Cody's wedding. And then we did... Tyson and um, Abby's wedding, June 14th, a year ago. So they've been married one year, Leela and Cody two years. And on August 2nd, we're going to be involved with Justin and Heidi's wedding in Texas, in the frying pan, in August. (laughs) What are they thinking? They're in love. But there's one thing I can tell you about all these weddings that I've participated in is there is something that goes wrong. There's um, the bride late. I can't tell you how many weddings I've officiated at where the bride is late. The groom gets sick to his stomach. I've had that happen. I've had bridesmaids (laughs) fall down or groomsmen faint. All those things just seem to happen. There have been weddings where it's so hot that the candles melt without even being lit. Um, The cake falls apart. There gets wax on the food from the candles. And the most recent one that has happened that is just kind of cracks me up is I just did a wedding a couple weeks ago where the grandparents made a brand for the young couple that got married. And so after they were wedded as husband and wife, instead of having unity sand or candles, they were taking a brand together and they're going to brand some cowhide. And so grandma and grandpa got one of those big propane torches and they lit that baby up and they were heating up the end of the brand so that they could stamp the, the cowhide. And grandma's holding the torch and grandpa's holding the brand and they're, they're firing stuff off and I'm looking because I stepped back a little bit and I looked and I saw some smoke and I wasn't thinking too much about it and pretty soon the new grandson went up and said, Grandma, you're burning the tree up. She caught the tree on fire. That would have been a story that would have gone down in family history. Hey, you remember the wedding where Grandma burned down the tree and the the wedding arch and everything was on fire and we had to call the fire department? 
those are not the memories you want to have of a wedding. Despite all the near calamities or disasters, at the end of the day, a couple is married. It's a great day. It's a celebration. It's really awesome that they get married. And in families, focus and remembering those moments. So our focus this morning is on Jesus going to a wedding. I mean, we think a lot about Jesus and all the things that he does, but he plays a significant role even in the things that we don't, we don't attribute to Jesus as being that important. But going to a wedding is a big deal because Jesus showed up and he brought his disciples. And so we're going to look at, at um, the passage found in John, the Gospel of John, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Here's what it says. On the third day, there was a wedding at Canaan in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone jars, Um, water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it to the master of the feast. And when he had tasted the water, which had now become wine, he did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did in Canaan of Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This was a celebration, disaster averted. Now we have Jesus going to the wedding. What, what we want, I want you to get the picture of this because we talked about this last week. Jesus goes to the Jordan River where he's baptized by his cousin John and then he gets up out of the water and the, the Spirit of God has descended upon him and the heavens open up and God declares, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. And then Jesus immediately heads out into the desert for 40 days of being tempted by the devil He kicks the devil's hind in and says, not going to work here. I'm not giving in to your temptations. And then he hooks back up with his disciples and he heads off to the wedding. And there's some really important things that take place in this gospel. Because here's what the thing, the deal about this gospel is, is that John wrote this gospel sometime like 40 around 30 or 40 years after the other gospel wrote, writers wrote theirs. So he's, he's taken some perspective on this whole thing of what's going on in Jesus' life. So when he puts something into the, his writing about Jesus, it carries weight and significance. And so the story of this wedding carries weight to it that oftentimes we don't see because we don't look closely and examine What's there before us? And so let's take a look at it. Let's look at verse 1. It says, On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Why was Mary there? Well, obviously, she was a relative to either the bride or the groom. And so she showed up for the wedding. 
And, and it, it's really significant that John mentions third day. Now, the third day, is it, it was a two-day journey from where um, Jesus was with his disciples around the Jordan River to this place, Cana. And so on the morning of, it took two days to get there, so the third morning, Jesus shows up to the wedding. The third morning, Jesus shows up. Huh. And, and, and it, he, he, he comes in and he's participating and celebrating with the people that are there. And so the very reason for John putting this in, this, in the gospel has a specific meaning for us. The mention of this third day is reference to what is clearly evident. Is it not? Because what was Jesus was resurrected on what? The third day. But he has not been resurrected yet. What Jesus is doing and what John is doing is he's saying, hey folks, pay attention because the third day is a big deal and you need to pay close attention to what Jesus does on the third day. It was significant in all of Scripture the third day because in Hosea 6.2, the prophet prophesied about Jesus and what would happen on the third day. And there he wrote this, the, the prophet Hosea. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. So the third day carries some significant meaning as we read through Scripture. It's in this account of the significance of the miracle of changing water into wine. It is a miracle of transformation, of bringing life out of death. We are given here a hint of what this miracle symbolizes. Like at this wedding and most weddings, there's a disaster looming in the foreground, one that would be of great embarrassment to the groom's family, a, a calamity of catastrophic proportions. It would be one of those moments where the whole relative would talk about, did you see what happened at the wedding? They ran out of wine. Hospitality is a huge thing in the Eastern culture. You want to have a great conversation? It's done around food. And, and you don't want to ever run out of food. You don't want to run out of the, the things that are going to make your time together as a family great. I mean, we all experienced that yesterday. It would be a disaster, you know, to have three hot dogs and 30 people. All right, everybody, you get one little hot dog on a stick. Enjoy. That would, be, that would not be a good thing. And it's the same here as this is, is playing out. We've got this, this situation that's coming to bear to light that they have run out of wine. We're, and, and, and Mary recognizes that there's this problem that's going to be, she's facing, and so she goes to her son Jesus. And I think that she probably has in the back of her mind what was told to her by the angel Gabriel. And the angel Gabriel said to her, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great and be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God, and the Lord God will give him to him the throne of David, his father, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of this kingdom there will be no end. So in verse 3, Mary comes to Jesus. And what does she say to Jesus? She goes, Hey, son, we've got a problem. The wine ran out. 
they have no wine. And Mary comes to Jesus because she's expecting Jesus to do something. There is something she is expecting from, um, from Jesus, something for him to come and step in and, and solve the problem because she doesn't just see Jesus as her son. She knows who he is. He is the son of the living God. And by now she's already heard of the events that took place at the Jordan River with with John, that Jesus was baptized, that the Spirit came upon him, and that the Father declared, this is my Son with whom I am well pleased. She knows all these things are going on, and so here's a significant moment for Mary because she understands that her Son is, is stepping onto the platform of the world to be the Son of God in flesh for us. And so he, she comes to him and simply says, they have no wine. Now take a look in verse 4 at what Jesus said. Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Jesus clearly understood her. He, he knew exactly what she was saying. She didn't miscommunicate. He didn't have a hard time picking up what she was laying down. But he said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? Now, in our culture today, if one of my boys would have said, if my wife would have said to one of my boys, son, I, I need you to take care of this problem. And my boy would have turned around and said, woman, what does this have to do with me? <laughs> he would have gotten smacked upside the head so fast he wouldn't have known what hit him. But that's our culture. You see, that's disrespectful in our culture. But in Jesus' time, what Jesus was doing was he was simply responding in a very respectful way to his mom. He, he's using a common title of respect for his mother. And, and what he's really saying is, you know, when he says, what does this have to do with me? That is simply a Hebrew way, Hebrew way of saying, hey, mom, you don't understand. So what he is saying is that he will not do something. He does not mean that he will not act because he did act. He means what I do will not accomplish what you were hoping. It will not persuade the nation that I am the Messiah. Miracles were indeed a part of God's plan for Jesus. They would be performed, but they would not convince the nation that he was the Messiah. Now, I love what Mary does. Because in verse 5, Mary says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. I'm just going to say this. That's good advice. Do whatever he tells you. I mean, if you just think about it. If only we would do what Jesus tells us. If we would take the advice of Mary, do what Jesus tells you then our lives would be significantly different. We would live in, in, in such a way that our lives would, would be free from a lot of the, the, the tanglements that we bring in on ourselves. Notice that Mary doesn't tell Jesus what to do. She trusts him to do what's best in this uncomfortable situation. Far too often, we as people, we want Jesus to do something, but we want to tell him what to do. And we want to tell him how to do it. 
We don't, we don't pick up any of the clues that Mary lays here at Jesus. She says, son, here's the problem. They're out of wine. She looks at the, the people who are serving the guests, and she simply says, whatever he tells you to do, you just do it. And then she walks away out of the scene. She's not involved anymore. Our lives would just be so much better if we would just do what, what Jesus tells us to do. Who knows, we might even experience a miracle if we did what Jesus told us to do. That'd be awesome, wouldn't it? Just, I, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to do what you tell me to do, Jesus, and then bam, we're blessed with something that we would have never imagined because we were just obedient to Jesus. So, here's where it goes. As always, Jesus begins with what's at hand. Right here in front of him. So he has six stone jars in front of him. Six stone jars. And he's looking at them because those stone jars were full of water when, when, when guests were arriving at the party. Because they had to do the, the purification rites. They had to wash their feet, their hands, their face, their neck. They had to purify themselves, all the different washings they had to do in order to enter into the festivities. And so now all that water out of those jars is gone. They're, they're big ones. They hold 20 to 30 gallons of water. And, and so Jesus looks at these six stone jars. And he turns to the servants and he says, fill the jars with water, in verse 7. And they filled them up to the brim. Now, I, I want you to get the understanding of this because here are these stone jars. Let's just imagine that this is the place where we're celebrating the worship or the, the celebration of this couple who's getting married. They've been married. They were celebrating. We're out of wine. Jesus says, now go fill these six stone jars with 30 gallons of water. They don't get to run from here to the kitchen and turn on the faucet and fill up, dump water into the stone jars and then bring them back. They have to go either out to the well or they have to go down to the spring or if the lake is close by, they go down to the lake. 30 gallons of water. Um one of those stone jars would weigh at least 200 pounds full of water. It's not a one-man job. You have 1,200 pounds of water that these guys, are got, they've got to take the stone jars out to the well. They've got to fill them up and they've got to bring them back. So it wasn't like they brought a garden hose in from outside and just stood there and filled them up. Takes 10 minutes. It probably could have taken depending on how many guys were there, half an hour, maybe an hour. That's a lot of water to move. And you can, uh, you know, my picture in my mind, now this is my mind, so it's not gospel. I have a picture of, remember in Lord of the Rings when Gandalf was sitting on the hill po smoking his pipe and blowing sailboats out of smoke? And that's my picture of Jesus as these guys are filling water. He's just puffing on a pipe. And just blowing smoke rings and doing that. Just relax, just watching the guys. And, and then when they're done with the, the water, he does something really interesting. He's, 
you'd love to be a servant, wouldn't you? Because now Jesus says to one of the servants, take a ladle of that water and take it to the master of ceremonies and have him take a little sip from it. That's in verse 8. And so this servant, he's got this water and he's walking over to this guy and he's going like, okay, dude, here's the wine. Have a sip. I'm interested. I mean, you, you just, it just got to be some of those places where Jesus is doing some crazy stuff. You just want to be a part of it, even if you're not the main character being healed or raised from the dead, but you're, you're, a, you're in there, and all of a sudden, it's just you, you know? It's like the coach going like, hey, Simon, get in there and do some work on the, on the football field, and you're like, what? Football? Okay, coach, I'm going in. That's what Jesus did. He tapped him and said, get in there. Take this ladle to the masters. And he takes it in. And he just, it's so amazing what happens. Because Jesus, all he said to these guys was fill up these jars with water. Then take this ladle of water to the masters of ceremony. Jesus didn't pray over it. There was no word of command. There was no hysterical shouting. There was historical, no hysterical shouting, no pleading with a screwed up face, no laying on of hands, no binding Satan, no hocus pocus mumbo jumbo, nothing. He didn't even touch the water. He didn't even taste it afterwards to see if it really happened. He simply said, draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. feast. That's, that's, that's just absolutely Mind-blowing, but simply dignified. The water simply became wine. Jesus takes water, an inorganic, non-living, commonplace substance, and without a word, without a gesture, without the laying on of hands, in utter simplicity, the water becomes wine, an organic liquid, a product of fermentation belonging to the real realm of life. He demonstrates his marvelous ability to master the process of nature because the real process of nature is to water the plant, let it grow, produce the fruit, pick the fruit, take the fruit, squish the fruit, make the juice, and ferment it to become wine. And Jesus just skipped a few processes, and he took the water and turned it to wine. He said, we don't have time for the rest of this stuff. Let's just get the wine. Right? I mean, he, it, it, Jesus worked within the natural realm of nature. Because wine comes from the, the natural elements of nature. And he just took it from water to wine, just skipped the whole process. It, this is such an unusual thing to have happen right in front of your eyes. But I, I, I hope you're placing yourself into the context of this passage because you should be connecting the pieces right now. On the third day, Jesus takes something non-living, non-organic, and brings it to life. And it's joyful. Now, there are some people that claim that Jesus didn't turn the water into real wine. That's such a pile of foo-foo. It probably doesn't even deserve to be addressed, but let me just help you understand. If you're thinking, 
Well, you know, I grew up in the Baptist church in Wineville. That was the devil's drink. Well, that wasn't true. And what we have to know is they do not serve grape juice at a Jewish wedding. They serve wine. They always have, and they always will. And we know that when it says wine in the Bible, it's not talking about grape juice. It's talking about wine. Because it also says, don't get drunk on wine. Be careful how you drink. Don't let yourself become overindulged into something that God meant to be good and we turn it into something bad. We, wine is a commonplace drink at that time. And one that the believers that Jesus brought into faith partook of along with everyone else in the, in the culture and climate. Our Lord clearly did change water into real, true, genuine wine. And it wasn't just wine. It was superb wine. It was the best wine. It was magnificent. It, it, was, it was something that if you were to drink it, you would be going like, whoa, this is great. The, the amazement of the steward of the feast when he drank the wine, can you see him just taking this cup and sipping it? He, he takes it, you know. He's probably a wine snob. He probably looked at the young lad who brought him the cup of water and said, could you bring me the cork? I'd like to smell it. Uh, let me so go see if we can find one cork this big around to put in that jug of water. Nope, it's gone. He swirls it. He smells it. He takes it. He swirls it around in his mouth and he's like, wow. This, this is unbelievable. It's amazingly good. You know, it, it's I just love what, what Jesus is doing because he knows this little kid that he sent in there with this cup of water and it turned into wine. I don't know if it turned into when it was, where it, where it transformed into wine. But the, the master of the ceremony takes a sip of this and looks at the servant kid and goes like, now that is some really good wine. And the kid's going like, yeah, you should see how good it is. Like, I've seen where it comes from. He tasted this water had been, been become wine. And the, everybody knew what it was about. And in verse 10, here's what he says. Everyone serves good wine first, and then people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. <laughs> We're not told what the bridegroom said, but you can imagine the bridegroom going like, Uh, and he was really smart, this bridegroom. Did you know what he did? He didn't say a word. He kept his mouth shut. He let the moment play out. And he, he, didn't, he didn't even know what had happened, but what he did do was he took the credit for it. Because here's what I want you to understand is that in our culture, who's the center of attention at, and focus at a wedding? the bride, and all of her glory and all of her splendor. I mean, 
you know, the, the, the groom walks up to the front with the pastor and he stands there and everybody's out there and, and they're yik-yakking. They look up and they go, oh, look, it's the pastor and the groom. Dork. And they go back to talking, right? It's no big deal. And then some music starts and then here come the bridesmaids and everybody's starting to go, shh, shh, she's going to be coming in a minute. Shh, shh. And then they all come and they line up and then all of a sudden the music changes and everybody looks to the back and all of a sudden there's dad with his daughter in this beautiful dress, just dressed up, and everybody, what do we do? We all stand up in honor of the bride, and we take a look at her, and all the women are going, oh, she's so beautiful, oh, and all the dads are going, I'd never let my daughter wear a dress like that. <laughs> but it's all focused on the bride, and nothing starts till she gets up to the front. But that is not Eastern culture. It's focused on the groom. I hate to say, don't listen, I'm just the messenger, so don't throw stones. But the bride is kind of like, well, the groom is us. He has to be there in order for the wedding to happen. The, the bride had to show up in order for the groom to do his thing. Okay, but here's the other thing. The groom foots the bill for this whole shindig. And this whole shindig lasts one week in Eastern culture. It's not like, you know, five or six hours. We're talking about feeding all the relatives on each side of the family and all the friends from the neighborhood coming together for this festive event. And you've got, and, and the, you know, their normal meal is kind of like vegetables, maybe some fruit, some bread, some cheese, and water at the... They don't eat meat because that was like over the top. You don't eat meat regularly. We, we eat meat every day. And we, we, you know, we blow a gasket when we don't get a steak every day. Well, they didn't get a steak even maybe every year. And so they have meat at this thing. And the, the groom foots the bill for a week-long festivity. And to run out of wine is shameful. It's laughingstock of the community. But when Jesus turns the water into wine and the master of the ceremony takes a sip, I'm sure the groom knew that there was no more wine. He's thinking to himself, how am I ever going to face my family, my relatives, my neighbors, my friends? How am I ever, I'm going to be the laughingstock of the community. And all of a sudden, going from being the goat, he becomes the hero. Because he saved the best wine for last. Jesus, I love what Jesus did. This kid over here who's getting married and he's starry-eyed about his bride and they're going to start this beautiful life together. There's a disaster, no more wine. What are we going to do? Jesus over here in the corner behind the scenes, he serves this man over here without him even knowing it and turns his water into wine and this guy becomes like, you have set the standard for what weddings are going to be like. You save your absolute best wine for last and people are really going to enjoy it. And Jesus blessed that man, that young groom, without him even knowing it, without him ever, somebody asked on his behalf, his Aunt Mary asked on behalf to his cousin Jesus, if you could do this. And Jesus said, yeah, I'll do it. I'm going to do it for Jimmy. Because I love him. And I don't want him to be embarrassed Verse 11, 
John writes this. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. There are three factors that call for our attention in this verse. First, John says the miracle was a sign. It was a parable acted out. Signs are not merely miracles. They are miracles that have a meaning. They are intended to convey truth that would otherwise uh, not be known. In Texas, there is a general named Sam Houston. Sam Houston is the guy that defeated the Mexican army and brought independence for Texas from Mexico. He is a big hero in Texas. They named a city after him. It's a very large city, by the way. (laughs) Sam Houston University. Know that one? Yep. All right. So this guy's pretty well revered in Texas. I mean, he's a big dude. He's a big star there. He, He has made his way. And so what they did is they erected a tower for him in memory of him. And it's very similar um, to the Hoover Tower at Stanford University, if you've ever seen that one. And so you've got this huge tower, and they placed right in front of this with, you know, typical Texas modesty. They put a sign in front of it that says this. This tower is 10 feet taller than the Washington Monument. Who cares about Sam Houston? We've got the tallest because everything in Texas is bigger. (laughs) But that's what signs are for. Signs are to tell you something that you didn't already know. All right? And that's what Jesus did. Jesus came along. He manifested this this great um, miracle. It was a sign that he is giving to everyone there. He is telling them something that they don't already know. It's a picture of this, of a normal outcome of the contribution of human and divine activity. Men can fill water jars. Only God can turn water into wine. Men do the ordinary, the commonplace, the normal activity, but God touches it and brings it to life and gives it flavor, fragrance, and effect. That is the meaning of this sign. It is the indication of what the ministry of Jesus is going to be like whenever he touches a human life. Not only during his lifetime on earth, but also through all the running centuries to come. Whenever his ministry would be present in the world, lives would be transformed. It affects us today as well. If you bring God into your, into your situation, into the humdrum, commonplace activities, and Jesus touches it like he did the water, not actually physically touching it, but just the mere presence that Jesus said, take the water to the master of the ceremonies, in that process, God will do something to your life with new power that makes your life fragrant, 
flavorful, enjoyable, and delightful, giving joy and gladness to the heart. Not just to yourself, but to all those around you. That's the meaning of the sign. The second thing is, it manifested His glory. In the first chapter of John, John tells us that Jesus, He came in flesh and made His dwelling among us, and He came full of what? Grace and truth. Jesus, full of grace, full of truth. He manifested His glory through this. In this event, how did He manifest manifest both His grace and truth? His grace was manifested by changing the water into wine and being so gracious to this guy who didn't even ask Jesus for anything and he got more than what he could ever imagine. The best wine that's ever been served on planet earth. That's grace. God showed grace to him when he wasn't even expecting it. That's Jesus' grace in our lives. What's the truth then? The truth is is that as, as he came and he listened to his mother, he demonstrated to those around him that he is the Messiah, the Son of the Most High. Because He did something nobody else could do. The truth of Jesus was revealed by what He did. The third factor John brings out is His disciples believed in Him. They believed that here was God's man ruling over the works of God's hand put in dominion and authority over natural world, over the natural world, and doing whatever he pleased with it. Within the limits of nature itself. That is the sign, the meaning of this miracle. When the disciples saw it, they believed more deeply in him than before. They saw that there was one who could handle life. Here's one who could take commonplace thing, nothing out of the ordinary, simple water and make it into wine. Not just wine, but significantly better wine than anyone had ever tasted. Make it a source of joy, of glory, and of warmth. That's what Jesus does in our lives. I mean, you just, we, we so often forget what he has done. We so often forget the transformation he's doing. that we simply forget that we were once just water. We were water. And we, maybe you're already in the master ceremony's hands and you are delightful wine. Maybe you're in the servant's hands somewhere between the water jar and the master's hands over here and you are turning into wine. But you're on that path. God's grace and truth of transforming your life. Do you get it yet? They have no wine. We're supposed to hear those words as if they include us somehow. Those words were meant for you to hear about you and for me to hear about me. So when did you first realize it? Where were you? How old were you? What happened that caused you to see 
to know, to confess at some deep place inside of you that your own wine had run out, that your life wasn't working and would never work as a self-made project. When did you figure it out that all the bailing wire in your repair kit couldn't patch or fix up the you that was broken? When did you hit the wall with the truth about yourself that your brains, your beauty, your money, your connections, your luck, or whatever it else is, it is that you're counting on was empty or impotent when you needed it the most? Jesus turns water into wine. Jesus comes to you and says, your wine ran out. Your wine was phony. My wine is real. My wine carries with it forgiveness, grace, mercy, love, and it brings new meaning. There is enough wine, six jars full, Twelve hundred pounds of wine. Enough for the journey. Do you see it? There is enough. There's more than enough grace and love for all of us. There's this abundance. More than we ever could handle or need or claim to need. Grace flows into your life. And it flows into mine. Grace and love never run out. Many jars, hundreds of bottles, plenty. Plenty more. We more than we can ever carry, more than we can ever fathom, more certainly than we ever deserve. The miracle here is not the water is changed into wine. The real miracle is that the, regardless of what happens to us today or tomorrow, regardless of what loss we suffer, suffer, regardless of what hills we have to climb, regardless of what hurts we have to just endure, the grace of God greets us and is inexhaustible. The miracle is that God takes ordinary people, ordinary things, ordinary events, and changes them into new wine and gives them to us as gifts of love and grace, gifts that strengthen, encourage, and heal. And I cannot, I cannot tell you what's going to happen in your life tomorrow. I just don't know. I don't even know what's going to happen in mine. But whatever it is, God's grace and strength will be there for you to face it and meet you on the day that you need it the most. And that, my friends, is not merely good wine. It is the best wine, inexhaustible and abundant. So today, bring God into your situation. Your life may feel humdrum, commonplace. You may just be going through the motions of life. Uh, and there's all these unknown events of the future. There's all the hurts and pain and suffering of the past and maybe some laying just before you. Every aspect of your ordinary life, bring that and let Jesus touch you with new power that makes your life fragrant, flavorful, enjoyable, and delightful, giving joy and bringing gladness to your heart and to the hearts of those around you. That's what he says. So we need to celebrate Jesus at every turn, and we need to absolutely, 100%, take Mary's advice. Do whatever he tells you.
Amen? Our Father, we thank you for this story because on the surface, it just looks like a story of Jesus going to a party and helping out a little bit. But the reality is, is that you have revealed your Son to us in such a magnificent way that we can hardly even comprehend that we are old wine and you're giving us new wine, that you're transforming us. We may be going from a, a jar of water to the Master's hands to be tasted, to be proven that we are good. Not only good, but we are magnificent. And so I pray that we would celebrate your greatness in our lives, that we would celebrate your transforming power in our lives. No matter who we were, it's who you are making us to be that counts. And so we thank you and love you for making us a new creation. And may you have all the glory, we pray in Jesus' great name. Amen.